You know, Pastor Nate uh, mentioned all kinds of people with technical expertise who gave of their time to help us do what needs to be done, and rightly so. We honor those folks, but uh, we also need to recognize that uh, without uh, all the people who don't have a lot of technical skills and just did whatever needed to be done at every turn, those technical folks can't do what they need to do. And so we can't stand up here and name all 400, 500 people who uh, were involved in some way, but that's the reality of it, and that's what it takes. Uh, some of our gifts are in a variety of places, but when we're willing to do whatever needs to be done, uh, it makes an incredible difference. Well, we're going to look at John 13 this morning, the example of kingdom greatness. But I'm going to read verses 44 through verse 50 of chapter 12 uh, before we open God's Word together this morning. And I invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of the perfect words of our sovereign God. Stand with a sense of anticipation that God honors His Word, that God transforms lives according to the truth of His Word, that as the Scripture said, His Word does not return void. So there ought to be a sense of palpable expectation among us this morning. And we also know that in the Scripture and in the Scripture alone, do we know the true story of the world. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority. But the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that His commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Oh, the incredible authority, power, sovereignty of Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we bow before you today, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Creator, Sustainer, Redeemer. We come that you would shape us and mold us according to the truth of your word. That we would be humble before you and before your word. And that humility would transform us where we are a humble people in every aspect of our lives. For what do we have that we have not been given? Oh Lord, help us to understand better kingdom greatness. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. If you follow sports like I do, you know that in every major sport there's the constant argument over 
who the GOAT is, the greatest of all time in that particular sport. If you follow basketball, there's the debate, is it Michael Jordan, is it LeBron James? And too many of you sleep on Wilt Chamberlain. If you follow baseball, is it Babe Ruth, is it Barry Bonds, is it Hank Aaron, is it Ty Cobb, is it Willie Mays? If you follow football, is it Tom Brady, Joe Montana, is it Jim Brown? If you follow tennis, is it Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, is it Novak Djokovic? Now, if you want to know the correct answer to all of those, I will tell you after the service. But what I want to say to you today is that this idea of who the goat is was something that Jesus' disciples knew all about. It's something that they talked about a lot. Except they were vying to be the goat. The one who sits at the chief seat in Jesus' kingdom. It was on their mind. Who is going to get those places? In Matthew 18.1 we see, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, they are recognizing Him, but they want to know who's going to get that primary place, the chief seat, the the place of honor. Who is going to be there? In Luke chapter 9, verse 46, Jesus had just told them that He was going to die. But the text tells us they did not understand... But there was something on their mind. We read it in Luke 9.46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. I don't really get what you're saying, but I wonder who among us is the greatest. You see, that sort of default that we have to, to think in these sorts of ways. And now we come to John chapter 13, which is often called the farewell discourse, but, but really probably more practically in our language, it's a, it's a discipleship course. Jesus is offering a discipleship course because He's about to die. He's about to be crucified. And He's going to be raised and He's going to ascend to the Father. But He's not going to be among them in the same sense. So He is preparing them that He is going away. Now one of the fascinating things about this section is that from John chapter 13 to John chapter 19, we have one 24-hour day. 13, 14, 15, 16. 17, 18, 19. One 24-hour period, sunset to sunset. It begins with Jesus washing the feet of His disciples, and it ends with His burial. But before it gets to the crucifixion and uh, burial of Christ, Jesus closes this, this discipleship training By praying for them. We often call it the high priestly prayer. But but this, this preparation, this intense time of discipleship, it all starts, interestingly enough, with Jesus washing His disciples' feet. What happened just before that, when we understand this in relationship to the other Gospels, 
is something you heard read in the service earlier. Right before Jesus washes the disciples' feet, we have what's going on in Luke 22, beginning in verse 24. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. And then he goes on to tell them, that is my kingdom. That's the way my kingdom operates. Kingdom greatness. It turns on its head our normal way of thinking about what marks greatness. It it flips it over. Just as he does so many places, the first shall be last. The meek will inherit the earth. And kingdom greatness is the one who serves. Jesus kept teaching them this, and they just couldn't get it. Probably not the right word. They just wouldn't get it. Right? What what we tend to do is we listen, and we listen for what we want to hear. And we sort of selectively listen, and the things that we don't want to hear, we put aside. He taught his disciples about this over and over again, but they just won't get it. But before we shake our head at them, so often we just don't or won't get it. Here's an uncomfortable truth. We would often prefer temporal applause to kingdom greatness. That seems distant. That doesn't, that's not going to scratch my itch right now. And we, we start bartering, bartering. Well, we know what it says, but if, if I could just get a little recognition, if I could just get a little applause, I'm, I'm not asking for a lot. I'm not prideful. I, 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 just a little. See, this is so important. Because what Jesus does now is He is so committed to them getting this before He is crucified, raised and ascended, that He provides a living parable. He embodies for them the truth of what He came to do for them. And He does it because He wants them to follow Him. He wants His followers to see what it means to be great in the kingdom, and to live that out. It's a window into what He's going to do in just a few hours on the cross. And the first thing we see in the first three verses is this, a servant's heart. Look with me in John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. The the word means He loved them completely. 
probably the best translation. He loved them to the uttermost. It's not just a chronological marker. It certainly points to the cross that is coming up. He loved them to the complete end of giving himself for them. But it's more than that. He loved them to that end and to the end. His love knew no bounds. It knows no bounds. He loved his own to the uttermost. Now, who is this who is choosing to love his own? And his own are disciples. All kinds of problems and thick-headed. And, and who is this one? Well, he's the, he's the sovereign one who can say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He's the one who has the authority to declare that I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one who it says right here in this text, he knew that his hour had come. He knew that he was departing out of this world to the Father. He knew that he was accomplishing his mission. He knew what was going on because he is the exalted one. This is high Christology. He's sovereign. He has authority. He has sovereign power. He is on a sovereign mission. We saw that, and that's the reason why I read uh, chapter 12, verses 44 through 50. It unfolds the, the power and majesty and magnitude and sovereign authority of Jesus. But he knows his hour had come. That theme works throughout the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 4. My hour is not yet come. Chapter 7, verse 3. His hour had not yet come. Chapter 8, verse 20. His hour had not yet come. Chapter 12, verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And in our text this morning, Jesus knew that His hour had come. His hour for what? To give His life for sinners. This one who made awesome claims beyond what anybody else could have ever claimed. This one committed himself to loving sinners to the uttermost. Loving those who in the face of him telling them, I'm about to die, are arguing over which one of them is the greatest. He committed himself to love them to the uttermost. Authority and power beyond our ability even to imagine. It's used to offer uttermost love to sinners. Verse 2, during supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. The Bible tells us that Judas was motivated by greed, that he was a thief, even though he was one of those who were traveling around as a disciple. But it also tells us that this is the devil at work. The opposition to this one who had come to love to the uttermost. Verse 3, Jesus knowing. Do you see how it emphasizes His sovereign authority? He knows what's going on. He's not being swept away at the whim of human circumstances. Jesus knowing, verse 3, that the Father had given all things into His hands. And that He had come from God and was going back to God. 
Jesus understood his identity. He understood his mission. He understood that he came from God. He understood that he was going back to the Father. The triune God, eternal fellowship. The Son takes on human flesh. He has a mission to do. He's going back. Jesus is secure. He's not trying to prove himself. He's not trying to make a name for himself. He knows what is happening. But what does sovereign authority and power to do? He chooses to love to the uttermost. A struggling, sinful band of misfits. When you look at those who had followed him, you're like, what a weird conglomeration of misfits. The sovereign one. The one who came from the Father. Who was returning to the Father. Who could love to the uttermost. Committed himself to do just that for these sinners. But notice this. What is Jesus thinking about hours before he is headed to the cross? To bear the Father's wrath. What is he thinking about? He's thinking about them. He's teaching them. He's helping them. He is so utterly unself-absorbed. Now, lest you think, oh yeah, but it's Jesus and He's got all this power. Listen, because He was without sin, what He underwent in paying for the penalty of sin, what He knew was coming, we see in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he sweats drops of blood. What he underwent is far beyond anything that you and I have ever undergone or could even imagine. The horrors of the cross. Whatever the horrors of the cross there, in eternity in hell won't pay the debt that he paid on the cross. So he was facing that. He was facing what sent him to the garden and said, if possible, let this cup pass from me as, as blood drips off of his forehead. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. He was facing that. But what we see in the text he's thinking about is them, his disciples. He is so unself-absorbed. That's a mark of kingdom greatness. A mark of kingdom greatness is when difficulty comes, You don't start thinking about yourself and self-protection. When difficulty comes, you even more so start thinking about others. Unself-absorbed. But secondly, we see the servant's example. Verses 4 through 11. Look at verse 4. He rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments. And taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. You see, they would have been been reclining at table on the ground and, and this is a situation where it seems that there was no one there to do the usual task of, of cleaning the feet. A task which was a menial task, so menial that some slaves were forbidden from doing it even. And only the low-tier slaves 
were to do this task. It's so meaningful. You can imagine sandals walking on dusty streets, and those streets are often packed with manure of animals and how smelly and dirty and stinky. Listen, I get it. I hate feet. Judy's like, you know, one time I said, feet are weird. I, I, I hate my own feet. I don't like looking at them. Feet are gross. I, I get it. I have a, one of my kids who has even a greater aversion to feet than I do. But feet, man, if anything I want to touch, it's not a foot. But, but, but here in this context, it's, it's far more so. And it's embedded with all this cultural layering of, of where you stand on the cultural hierarchy and ladder. And so it seems to be that there's nobody here to, to do that job. And so instead of one of the other disciples popping up to do it, the one who was the, the honored guest, the, the teacher, the, the rabbi, he hops up. And, and you cannot imagine their sense of awkwardness when they saw him get up, pull off his outer robe, take up a towel, it would have been thick in the room. Like, it's just inappropriate. What is going on here? He's giving a theological picture of his life, ministry, and the coming cross. What did Jesus do? He, he came from heaven and he, he laid aside his outer garments. I love B.B. Warfield. He says that Jesus did not lay aside his deity. He laid aside the dignity of deity. Philippians 2.7 says he took the form of a servant, a slave, and humbled himself. Jesus here takes the form of a servant. He takes the task of a low-tier slave here. And he gets up to do this feet washing. It's picturesque. It's descriptive. It slows down. It's a determined sort of action. It wants you to see, and, and it wants you somehow to feel what is going on. He pours the water in the basin and they have to be shaking their heads. Certainly, somebody's going to come in and do this. And then he starts to wash the disciples' feet and they are struck with a sense of an awkward sense of scandal and inappropriateness. Now, when we have staff get-togethers, oftentimes there's, there's a particular staff person who's going to be the guy who always takes it too far. Right? He's the too-far staff member. He's the one It's always, yeah, it's funny, it's funny. Oh, man, it's just awkward and inappropriate now. His name is Nate. But (laughs) always, always, Nate always takes it to a level where the enjoyment all saps out of the room. You're like, oh, you said that? The the awkwardness here would have been so huge. The, The feeling would have been, this should not be. What is happening here? Severin of Gabala wrote in A.D. 40, He who wraps the heavens in clouds wrapped around himself a towel. He who pours the water into the rivers and pools tipped water into a basin. And he before whom every knee bends in heaven and on earth and under the earth bent his knee to wash the feet of his disciples. Verse 6, He came to Simon Peter and said to him, 
He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? You know, I've come to love Peter. You know, I used to I used to read Peter years ago, and I'm like, oh, God, you keep doing that. And now I've lived long enough to know I'm way more like Peter than uh, I want to admit. The, the sort of the sort of uh, uh, impulsive, too sure of himself, often thick headedness in his thinking. I love what Michael Carr says. He says here the portrayal of Peter's character is consistent. He is always himself. That's not always a good thing, by the way. He's just always himself. Impestuous. Lord, do you wash my feet? He sees what's going on. The awkwardness. Nobody else is going to speak up. I'll speak up. This should not be happening. He is standing up for Jesus' honor in this moment. If you had an honored guest and they start doing something, it's like you run. No, no, no. You shouldn't do that. We will do that for you. Peter's standing up for his honor. And then we see in verse 7, Jesus explains. <clears throat> Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand afterward this whole sequence of events now you've got to understand how compressed this 24-hour period is they're going to see him crucified and buried and then they're going to see him raised afterward you will understand afterward you will understand that 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 i came from heaven and i came down i took the form of a servant i cleansed the people i rose back up i took my place back at that seat. You will understand. This is a reference to the cross and resurrection and ascension. In verse 8, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Literally, he says, never in this age shall you wash my feet. Never into eternity shall you wash my feet. Peter often is found correcting Jesus' theology. Oh, you're... You're laughing, because you never do that, right? Yeah. You never have something going on, and you're just like, it shouldn't be like this. God, you are making a mistake. You might not say that in your prayer. You're much more subtle. Now, we've seen in Lamentations, sometimes you say, this is what I feel like, God. But that's different than just saying, I have the ability to correct your theology. And so here he says, this will never happen. (laughs) Look at Jesus' answer in verse 8. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you shall have no share with me. Jesus gives a mini gospel here. This is all about gospel grace. He says, if you don't get this, your need for me to forgive you, to cleanse you, then you don't get me. You don't get fellowship with me. If you don't understand that I am the servant Lord, the servant Savior, if you aren't willing to let me serve you, then you will have no part in me. Now to be honest with you, we often would rather be given something to do than just simply told, I will serve you. We, we, we just want something to do. We, we want a sense of, of credit. We, we, we want a sense of, we can control what we do, right? In our simplistic thinking, but we never control what we do very well, do we? 
but, but we think we, we just want something to do. He, he comes near, and, and often we would rather Him be distant, transcendent, abstract. Yeah, a God that we can acknowledge, but doesn't impinge on our life. And, and, and this God comes and washes disciples' feet. It takes humility to receive a servant Lord. Right? It takes humility. It takes, it takes humility to believe that, that the Savior is a foot washer. It takes humility. A lot of times I know in my own, I, I don't, a lot of times I don't, I don't like to be served. I, I was the kid, do it myself, do it myself, do it myself. Right? That's the way a lot of us are as adults. Any notion that you have of your ability to control your life and your eternity is a mirage. And there is nothing that Satan would like you to believe more than that. You are totally, completely, helplessly dependent on what God does. If you don't have a foot-washing Savior, you don't have a Savior. He has to cleanse He has to act. Notice what it says in verse 10. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he is completely clean. And you are clean. But then the ominous reference to Judas here, but not every one of you. But, but, but note here, the one who is bathed, he's he, he a reference here to, to, to being bathed in, in the terms of salvation. If you are bathed, you don't need to be washed except for your feet. A reference to the confession and repentance that, that those who are saved live in. If you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Not to save you in the sense of the beginning of salvation, not regeneration, but rather a sense of you maintaining your relationship with Him, your constant fellowship with Him. You just need the feet clean. But if you have been bathed, if, if I have washed you, he says here, you are completely clean. Believe it, he says. Believe in my word. Believe what I say I do for people. Do not believe in your feelings. Do not believe in your conscience. Do not believe in your actions. Do not believe in your merit. Do not believe in the consensus of the culture and the people around you. Believe in my word. If I have cleansed you, you are completely clean. And any way in which you come to me and confess your sins, I am more eager to restore fellowship with you than you have ever been to come to me. This is what he says. You are completely clean. But not every one of you. There are those who appear to be his disciples. Who are not at all. Judas. Judas had the best teacher. He had the best pastor. He heard the best sermons. And he was a part of the best small group. And he was doomed. Doomed. You see, the dividing line is not what we think it is. The dividing line is whether we, are, we actually believe 
in Jesus. We actually have come to him and humbled ourselves that we are needy of the cleansing that only he can provide and that we are not trying to achieve it for ourselves. Verse 11, for he knew, once again, he knew. For he knew who was to betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. Do do you see the tension here? The tension between the sovereign authority and majesty and wonder and glory of Jesus? And what he does? He washes feet? He takes on human flesh? He serves needy and outcast and misfits? He eats with sinners? He dies for sinners. You see, have you noticed one thing that Jesus never talks about? What He deserves. Have you noticed that? Never in any of these instances does He ever talk about what He deserves. Nobody has ever deserved more than Jesus. Only honor and glory, and praise, and worship. But He never talks about what He deserves. Why? 1 Peter 2.24 says, He entrusted Himself to the One who judges justly, meaning the Father. Entrusted Himself. It, it can be translated as, He handed Himself over to the One who judges justly. He didn't need a judgment from the people around him at that time. The judgment would come from the Father, the only true and right judge. Never does he talk about what he deserves. Rather, he spends time talking about who he serves. Do you see it? You know, When you are marked by this sort of kingdom greatness, you are thrilled when other people are honored. Because that's what you think about, rather than yourself being honored. Think about a parent. A parent pours into a child. A child has an achievement. They're receiving an award for an incredible achievement. How many parents pop up in the middle of that and said? Quit focusing on him. You know how much I had to do to get him there? You know how many diapers I had to change? You know how often I had to help with the homework? You know what I had to pay for to get him there? Why are you just focused on him? Why don't I get some of the credit here? Parents don't even think like that. At least not good parents. You're sitting out there and you're like, look at that. I am so thrilled. You don't want a part of the honor. Why? Because you love your child. If you love your child, you think about them more than yourself. What are we called to do? To love one another. When we are more worried about whether or not we are honored to the degree that somebody else is, the problem is a lack of love. We must embrace the love that God has called us to have. We must embrace this this unself-absorbed sort of not even 
focusing on what we think we deserve. This is kingdom greatness. We've seen the servant's heart, the servant's example. But look in verses 12 through 17, we see the servant's challenge. And by the way, this is, this is so simple and so profound. Verse 12. When he, had, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, by the way, he took off his outer garments, he put back on his outer garments, he came from glory, he took on humanity. He returned to glory. He resumed His place. He's ascended at the right hand of the Father. When He resumed His place, He said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? Do you? Verse 13, You call Me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. He doesn't deny the place that He has and the authority that He has, the position that He has. He doesn't deny that. He says in verse 14, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. The one with sovereign authority and power, if he washes your feet, how in the world do you look at other people and say, I won't do that for you? This is so simple and yet so profound. i got good news for everybody in here. Kingdom greatness does not take any special gifting. Kingdom greatness does not take degrees. You don't need to enroll in the seminary for kingdom greatness. There there, there is no special ability that you've got to have. You've just got to be a willing servant, a, a willing, loving servant. Did Jesus wash their feet because they deserved it or earned it? Did He say, I'm not going to wash their feet. They might get big headed about this. No, they were already thick-headed. He's trying to crack through that. Did did he, He even washed Judas' feet. Can you imagine Judas after he betrays him? Before he kills himself? It had to haunt him that Jesus knelt down before him and washed his feet. It had to. He washed the head, the feet of these thick-headed folks who he says, I'm going to die. And they say, which one of us is the greatest? That's what we want to talk about. Right? I talked to somebody not too long ago. They were complaining about things in the church. And and I said, well, you know, this is just sort of the way things are headed, the way people are thinking. Yeah, but I thought things would be different in the church. Really? Do you have a Bible? There just aren't problems in the church, right? Because everybody fully lives exactly like Jesus. If we did, we wouldn't need Jesus. We need to constantly be called again afresh and anew to our Messiah. He he does this for those who, who have given Him nothing in terms of the adoration He deserves. Nothing in terms of the honor He deserves. Nothing in terms of the praise that He truly deserves. And yet He washes their feet. He he cleanses them. Jesus is more focused on them and us than He was with His coming suffering. Which was worse than any suffering that we'll ever face. Jesus was not interested in cultural applause or standing even among His own disciples. 
The disciples would have thought more of him if he took the cultural place of honor and stood distance from them and kept the spacing. They would have thought, wow, that's somebody worthy of following. He's not worried about what they think about him. What he's worried about is the mission, and he's worried about them. Jesus scandalized everybody with love and service. Kingdom greatness. What does he say? Go and do likewise. Look at verse 15. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Verse 16. Truly, truly, or amen, amen, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Are you and I greater than Jesus? No. But we can pursue greatness in Jesus' name. But it doesn't look like what anybody else has ever told us. And notice here, knowing is not enough. The disciples could have probably taken a quiz and given the right answers to the quiz, but in reality they were arguing about which one of them is the greatest. Knowing is not enough. He doesn't say that blessed is the one who can preach these truths powerfully. He doesn't say blessed is the one who can teach these truths greatly. He doesn't say blessed is the one who understands these truths. He says blessed you are if you do them. It is in the doing that there is the blessing. There are plenty of people who can preach powerfully about kingdom greatness and servant-hearted love who don't have it. And by the way, I'll say without hesitation that most of you inspire me all the time because you are out ahead of me in this way. And I am so thankful for your inspiration. We're not going to look at 18 through 30, which focuses on Judas's betrayal, but I do want you to note this. The text goes out of its way to say the disciples had no idea who it was. Even Jesus says he's going to dip the morsel and and give it, and he does it. But even then it tells us when Judas went out, they thought he was leaving. Jesus said, whatever you do, do quickly. And they think he's leaving to go buy supplies. Or he's leaving to go give money for the poor. The text tells us they had no idea it was Judas. Hear that warning. It is an awful thing to be around holy things and not care about them. And eventually, the one who is like that will be found out. You see, he's telling us here that there is a new pattern and new power that they are to see. Look with me at verses 34 through 35. We see the servant's witness. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Now you might say, well, I mean the Old Testament called for love. Leviticus 19.8 says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What is new about a call for love? The newness here is in the object and the measure. The, the object, the, you are to love one another. This community that's being formed that will be called the church. You are to love one another. This community uniquely indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 
where you all know me. You are to love one another. But the newness is also in the measure. Because after Christ comes, He's crucified, resurrected, ascended. Now people have seen the demonstration of love in a way they never saw it before. Love to the uttermost. And so He says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Just as I have loved you. We're not going to measure up to that, but His grace covers that as well. But because we're never going to measure up to it, doesn't mean that we ought not be on a path to live it out. No, this new commandment comes to a privileged people, a part of a body called the church that history had been pointing to who know the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in a way nobody has ever known it before, and know the Messiah and who He is and what He's done and how He fulfilled all of the promises, how every promise was yes and amen in Him. That people have a new commandment to love one another just as He has loved us to the uttermost. Verse 35, By this all people will know that you are My disciples if you have love for one another. Do you see how our love for one another is a part of our Great Commission mission? You show me a church where people are that's full of cliques and people are accusing one another and people don't love one another, I guarantee you, I can show you a church that is not accomplishing what they need to accomplish in terms of the Great Commission. By this, they will know you, my disciples, if you love one another. I love uh, what Josh Moody at College Church Wheaton does at the end of this text. He says this, You know whether you're really a servant when someone treats you like one. Do you get that? You know whether you're really a servant when someone treats you like one. And then he says, you are taken for granted. You do not get the credit for doing something important. You are forgotten. You are left with menial tasks. You receive no praise. He says, all these are the hallmarks of serving. At home with the children, at work with the staff, with our neighbors and friends. These are the hallmarks of serving. See, when you do something and you don't get praise, you should be like, yes. I'm free from that. I'm not in bondage to the applause of others. I'm not worried about what I deserve. What I deserve is hell. What I have in Christ is eternity. Do do you see it? The serving is the end to the glory of Christ. It's not a means to some end to get something for yourself. Do you see that? It is the end. And when we serve so faithfully and so consistently and so quietly, not calling attention to ourselves that we're not even noticed, we should say yes Now, when we are noticed and somebody says, thank you, we should appreciate it, but we can appreciate it rightly only if we don't crave it. 
what it means to embrace the best interests of others and not yourselves is just that. You say, yeah, yeah, but, but in the end, Jesus was exalted and glorified. Exactly. Go and do likewise. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your perfect and precious Word. Thank You for everyone who is here this morning. Lord, help us to embrace what You have for us in Your Word. Oh Lord, thank You. Thank You. Lord and servant. Thank You, Savior and servant. Thank You, Messiah but crucified Messiah. Thank You, Lord, that You came not to be served, but to serve and give Your life as a ransom for many. Oh, Lord, may we understand, may we feel, and may we live out Your call to go and do likewise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.